After explaining to his students that they were about to be left to the world, to the wolves, to those who hate them, persecute them, expel them from their customary places of worship, and kill them, Jesus again drops the big bomb. He is going to be leaving them. Upon first hearing this, it could almost sound like a modern-day rug pull. In the realm of cryptocurrency, a rug pull happens when an investor thinks they are investing into a new, reputable digital currency or project. Early investors are promised a bright future and big returns. Riches await those who invest early and often. However, after a short time, investors learn that the owners have now run away with their money and abandoned the project. The rug has been pulled out from under them, and what they thought was going to happen collapsed. Well, can you imagine being in the disciples' position? Jesus is their ringleader. He was their inspiration. They had witnessed miracles from this man. He'd protected them through both figurative and literal storms. Jesus had fed them real food and spiritual food. He had wooed them with his care, compassion, and directness. He was their rabbi. And he taught like no other rabbi. Jesus, their Messiah, challenged the religious authorities who had so much power and influence. Their leader, from Nazareth, had the chutzpah to take on the religious authorities in the very locus of their faith, the temple. The disciples, likely a group of young Jewish teenagers, believed Jesus was the one their ancestors, the Hebrew prophets, wrote about. They left their jobs and families to learn from him, to follow him, to enter into a life of public condemnation and mocking by all facets of society. Some thoughts that may have been running through the minds of these young Jewish teens when Jesus said he was going to be leaving them and going to the Father in John chapter 16 may have been, what do you mean you're leaving us to be further persecuted, mocked, and killed? How is that right? How is this good? Other rabbis did not leave their followers like this. How will the mission you started be fulfilled? How will the kingdom be restored to Israel? How will we escape the Roman persecution and occupation? 
How will you bring the kingdom talked about by the Hebrew prophets if you're leaving us? It's interesting in John chapter 16, verse 5, that Jesus tells his disciples, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? You see, at first glance, Jesus' words in verse 5 seem contradictory. For the disciples had previously asked Jesus where he was going. In John 13, 36, it's recorded that Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus told Peter that he could not follow him now, but certainly would later. In John 14, 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? The Moody Bible Commentary notes that in both of these instances, the disciples' questions seem superficial and were not pursued. But now, in this instance, sorrow has overwhelmed them. Their master, their friend, their savior is leaving them behind. It seems in their previous questions related to his leaving, they were either concerned with the way to follow him rather than the necessity of him leaving, or, as in the case of Peter, it seems he may have been caught up in the first century Jewish idea about a Messiah who was to disappear. Either way, their previous questions did not address where Messiah was going and why it was so important to the mission that he had to leave. In verse 6, Jesus says, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, in a typical situation, the disciples' sorrow would be appropriate. There are many institutions, churches, ministries, businesses, etc., that are based on the leader or the founder. Once a particular leader leaves, the institution collapses. Of course, if it was a bad leader, once a leader leaves, the organization may begin to excel and become healthy. But Jesus, as CEO, president, executive director of this new entity he's establishing called the church, he's actually trading himself out for something that is more advantageous for us as members of the institution. Imagine a business or ministry leader that is so influential, so gifted, and so well-liked by his followers that everything he touches turns to gold. The idea of that leader leaving would devastate those involved. But what if that leader actually left his spirit of wisdom and counsel with the organization? What if the organization could be assured of their CEO's presence long into the future, never having to worry about his death, compensation package, or him being away on vacation? That was the case when Jesus said, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. In Greek, the word that's used here is parakletos. This is literally translated into the English as one who helps. The Spirit is a person who helps. The Spirit is 
not referred to as an it. Scripture refers to the Spirit as a he or a him. He's fully God, just as Jesus is fully God. Jesus wants to help his disciples, and he wants to help us. That is why it is to our advantage that he goes away and the Spirit comes. You see, whereas Jesus was somewhat limited in his earthly body by being in one place at one time, the Spirit is omnipresent, being in many different places at the same time. The Spirit ministers in ways that Jesus did not. Just as the Spirit can be convicting an Israeli backpacker of sin in Argentina, at the same moment he can be consoling someone about the death of their loved one in Annapolis. At the same time, the Spirit is prodding someone to share their faith with their neighbor in Portugal. He can bring someone to godly repentance in Plymouth, Indiana. The Spirit can provide discernment to someone in Iceland. At the same time, he's giving encouragement to someone in Israel. And he does it all absolutely perfectly because he's God. The Spirit is here to help us. He is the one who helps. In John 16, verses 8 and 9, Jesus continues teaching about the Spirit and His coming. He says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. You see, the primary work of the Spirit is His conviction to convict unbelievers about their unbelief that Jesus is the Son of God. The Spirit pleads with people to believe in Jesus. In this way, we actually minister alongside the Spirit, pleading with our unsaved friends, family, and even strangers to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We spread the gospel through print, podcasts, videos, dramas, over a cup of coffee, under a dark bridge from the pulpit to the prairies. But all we can do is proclaim it and live it. It is the Spirit of God who then does the work of conviction, bringing people to repentance. Though it's always nice to listen to an eloquent speaker, and words do matter, it is never the speaker or cleverness of a presentation that convicts a sinner. It is always the work of the Spirit, whether the presentation was good in man's eyes or not. Of course, the Spirit not only convicts unbelievers, He also helps those whom He has already regenerated. But believers need to be listening for the Spirit. We need to be led by the Spirit and not stifle His voice in our head. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In his book, The Four Voices, author Patrick Morley tells the story about his first encounter with the Holy Spirit. He says, Our marriage got off to a clumsy start. The little I knew about manhood, marriage, and parenting had been pieced together from a collection of stereotypes and cliches. 
Within a few months of our wedding, I was desperate for help. So one Sunday morning, we found our way to a local church, walked up the sidewalk, and opened the door. And when we walked in, the people there were ready for both of us, but especially me, an inexperienced husband looking for help and hope. One week later, Dan Stanley and his wife invited us to a class they were teaching for young married couples. Flattered to be asked, we said yes. Because I was very much caught up in the world, I thought the class would be a good place to meet some potential investors for my real estate deals. So I put on my expensive suit I had purchased to impress people, and off we went. About 20 of us sat in a circle on those uncomfortable chocolate milk-colored metal chairs found in every church on the planet. I slouched in my chair, legs stretched out, hands in my pockets, staring at the terrazzo floor and daydreaming about my upcoming work week. I was jolted back to the present moment when Dan read from his Bible. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A lightning bolt of heat flashed through my body. My clothing was immediately soaked with an inexplicable amount of perspiration. My face flushed beet red. I've never been so embarrassed. Complete humiliation. I couldn't look up. My eyes riveted on the floor. I just knew every pair of eyeballs in that circle was focused on me, filled with disdain and derision. Had Dan been talking to my wife behind my back? I had no idea how he had discovered the truth, but I knew I'd been found out. I was a fraud, and now everyone knew what a terrible husband I'd been. As it turned out, he kept speaking. When I could finally lift my head, I saw no one looking at me. They'd all moved on. Whatever happened was entirely between God and me. Later, I learned there's a name for what happened. Conviction of sin. True conviction is the Holy Spirit convincing a person that he or she has fallen short of what God intended. It isn't to bring lasting shame and grief, but rather a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. When we come back on the Tove podcast, we're going to continue to study Jesus leaving and sending the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org.
Welcome back to the Tove Podcast. We are studying John chapter 16, and we are ready for verse 10, where Jesus tells his disciples, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. You see, when Jesus ascended to the Father in front of everyone, it proved he was who he said he was, as if seeing him again after a cruel, painful death on the cross were not enough. Eyewitnesses saw Jesus taken up into the clouds into heaven. This event is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, where we read the following. So when they came together, they, being the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see, if Jesus were not righteous, he would not have been taken up to the Father. He would not have been seated at his right hand. But Jesus is righteous. In verse 11 of chapter 16, he says, Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, an unbeliever might ask, What is the benefit of responding to the Spirit's conviction? What do I gain? Well, let's answer that by diving into Scripture. You see, if the ruler of this world is judged, that's Satan, it actually ensures that the subjects of this world and the subjects of Satan, the ruler will also be judged. The ruler's judgment ensures his follower's judgment. This judgment that's being referenced here in John 16, 11, is likely the great white throne judgment mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. That text says this, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. You see, this judgment being described in Revelation chapter 20 happens after the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on this earth, known as the Millennium or the Millennial Kingdom. This judgment is not for believers. Believers are not under judgment. 
In John 5, 24, we read Jesus' teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Rather, the great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers, and it'll be a judgment to determine the unbeliever's degree of punishment in hell. Jesus teaches about this concept of varying degrees of punishment for the unsaved in Matthew 11, 20-24. You see, the one who sits on the throne during this judgment is likely the Messiah himself, for all authority has been given to him by the Father, John 5, 22. So, going back to our question, if an unbeliever is wondering, what do I have to gain by listening to the Spirit, by following the conviction? The answer is everything. You have either eternal life, spending it in heaven or hell. So what about the believer? The believer may ask, What benefits do I gain from following the Spirit's prompting in my life? I'm already assured of eternal life in heaven. Well, this is quite true. You have been sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. And as believers, we know that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith, by believing in Jesus. It is the Messiah who has accomplished the work on our behalf. But after we are saved... Scripture indicates that works play a role in our rewards during this kingdom period. We are rewarded based on our works, not our sins. For our sins have been dealt with by the Messiah's once-and-for-all sacrifice. In contrast to the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, there's another judgment for believers spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Again, this judgment seat of Messiah, this judgment for believers, is also written about by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Commenting on this passage, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum makes the astute observation, The concern of this judgment is whether or not the believer followed what God's will was for him. If a believer is doing the will of the Lord, obeys his commandments, and fulfills the ministry for which he received his spiritual gifts, then he is building on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. But where he falls short of these things, he is building with wood, hay, and stubble. Thus, 
there are severe consequences for a believer to be living in sin, consequences that'll last 1,000 years. You see, as believers will be rewarded based on following God, following the Spirit of truth, and although our salvation has been signed, sealed, and delivered, who wouldn't want more rewards in the future kingdom? This concept is also seen in the parable of the ten minas. The one who used their gifts wisely, who multiplied for the master, was given more authority in the kingdom. In Luke 19, 11-27, the servant who managed his master's gifts wisely was told, quote, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So, are there consequences to us as believers for not following the Spirit's promptings? Absolutely. There are real-life consequences here on earth for following the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there are real-life consequences during our time in the Millennial Kingdom. Want more rewards? Follow the Lord. Be obedient to the Spirit's promptings. Verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was referring to here, but it's likely that many of these things were later revealed to the disciples and written in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, When this Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here we are promised that the Spirit will reveal truth and guide us into all truth. The Spirit tells us what the Father and Son want to communicate. This is where the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is so important. In a culture filled with blatant misinformation, lies, and worldly messaging, it is vital we remain rooted in God's Word and attentive to His Spirit. Paul commented on this reality in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And finally, in verse 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again a little while, and you'll see me. Of course, in this verse, he's speaking of his near death and resurrection. Jesus spoke these words just hours before he was arrested by Roman authorities and eventually crucified. But then, he rose from the grave three days later, proving that he was God in the flesh, proving that he was the Messiah of Israel. So, what are the key takeaways from this passage of Scripture in John chapter 16, verses 4 through 16? Well, first, we should actively seek out the Spirit of truth. That requires a discipline on our behalf. 
to actively be seeking, to be searching, to be asking, Lord, what is it that you want? Guide me by your Spirit. Guide me into all truth. Guide me away from falsehood. And then when we have received guidance from the Spirit, we immediately obey. Number two, we should actively walk or follow the Spirit of truth. You see, the Spirit's leading will never lead us into falsehood. Now, the Spirit may lead us into dangerous situations, which could even result in our death. But the Spirit will not lead us into falsehood. It will not lead us into lies. It will not lead us into hypocrisy. The Spirit will lead us into truth and righteousness. And finally, we should be actively sharing about the Spirit's work and availability. The world is full of lies. That's no surprise. The ruler of the world is a liar and a deceiver. And so therefore, it is incumbent upon believers to live in such a way and to be sharing in such a way so that other people hear the gospel, so that other people see our lives and they see that we're different than somebody else who's of the world. At Life and Messiah, we have a phrase. That phrase is, there's no substitute for being controlled by the Spirit. We have much to gain in this life and in the life to come. Just as Jesus called his first disciples by inviting them to follow him, so the Spirit says today, follow me. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the Tove Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, I'd invite you to head on over to lifeandmessiah.org and check out the work that our staff are doing around the globe, bringing the free, full, forever message of Jesus the Messiah to Jewish communities around the world. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the Tove Podcast, head on over to lifeandmessiah.org and click on the Tove Podcast tab. Otherwise, you can check on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Until next time, Shalom.